In 1959, a small German company was trying to market their vehicles to an American audience. And Americans at the time drove sleek, fancy sports cars or or big, huge cars that that went really fast and and revved up really quick. And this German company was thinking, how can we get these Americans to buy our vehicles? So they said, we've got to do something different to get people's attention. Something unusual, something unique. And that's when, in 1959, their team of advertising and marketers came up with one of the most famous and iconic advertisements of all time. Think small. Think small. This may seem unusual to you because, hey, it's black and white, and just in case you didn't know, there was color in 1959. There was color printing. But it was a black and white. It's just a small Volkswagen Beetle. Right? VW Beetle right in the corner, and it just says, think small. That's a strange marketing slogan, and yet it was so different from everything else that was out there. With all the white space on the ad and just a little bit of print, they got so many people to read what the print says because it hit. Think small? What? How unusual. This advertisement, whether you're a graphic designer or a marketer, is still studied today. Because it really changed how marketing and advertisement was done. It caught people's attention because it was so unique and it challenged people to think differently than everyone else was thinking. To think small. So we're starting a new series today called The Light Has Dawned. And we are going to look at several prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Now, if you've ever read Isaiah, you know it's one of the longest books in the Bible. 66 chapters. And I know you have it all memorized. But we're just going to look at five different prophecies this month. There's even more in there um, that, that point forward to Jesus. But we're looking at five in particular prophecies this month as they point forward over 700 years to Jesus and his birth. So it's really good. And um, so, so this is going to be interesting as we go in because what we're going to see first is that God is challenging us to think small. When he predicted 700 years before Jesus, the Savior of the world, would come and be born, he predicted in a very unusual way. And it was almost like that, trying to get our attention. Think small. Think differently. Have you ever you thought God would save the world? This is going to be different. It's going to be unique. So we're going to learn something very powerful from this. And then throughout the rest of the series, we'll look at some different prophecies that point us forward to Jesus. Now, I want to just go ahead and right off the bat give you my big idea for my message today, and we're going to unpack it after that. But this is what it is if you are taking notes and want to write this down. Our big idea is that through a virgin birth, God made us think small to reveal a huge truth. Through the virgin birth, God made us think small to reveal a huge truth. There's so much to impact, even just in the one verse that we're going to focus on today. But it's the concept of the virgin birth, the virgin Mary giving birth to this child. And it's such an amazing truth. And what I think is really interesting is that this truth of the virgin birth is one of the ones that if you've ever 
heard someone, or maybe you are that person, it's okay. If you've ever made fun of Christians or heard someone make fun of Christians, they make fun of the virgin birth. They really do. This is like the example of how outlandish our beliefs are. So I think that's so interesting. And in fact, a few years, well, several years now, when I was in college, a book came out and I read it. It was by a very popular Christian um, pastor and author at the time. And he wrote this book and he was saying, hey, of all the things we believe, he used the analogy of a brick wall. If you're building this brick wall, and what if you just take out one of those bricks? Is the wall going to fall down? And the example he used of a brick that maybe you could pull out was the virgin birth. Do you really need to believe in the virgin birth? It sounds outlandish. Even Christians who believe all the rest, they think, man, God created the universe, but a virgin birth, that's so weird. Do we need to believe that? And this author said, can't we just take that brick out? And at the time, I was thinking, well, you know, I guess maybe, but, you know, the, the real question is, why would you want to? Why would you want a hole in your wall? You know, and, and we as Christians should not think, what's, what's the, the smallest amount that we could believe and still be considered a Christian? Some people do this. They say, what's the smallest amount? What's the most minute things? What are the, the few things that we need to believe and still we can be a Christian? But what we should be thinking is, where is all the truth? How can I get more truth to believe in that, that really can change my life? Because if it is true, then it's important, especially if it's in God's word. And it has something that I believe in this doctrine that we believe is the virgin birth is so jam-packed with application to our life. It's important. So instead of thinking, well, could we take that one out? We think, how can I put that in and build my life on the rock? Right? That's what Jesus told us to build our life on the rock, the firm foundation. And God's word is that. So we're going to look at this truth of the virgin birth, and we're going to unpack three truths from it about why we believe in it. And I know some of you don't believe in it, or you're like, I'm a Christian, Matt, but that's a bridge too far. I want to challenge you today to maybe have an open mind to this truth because it is so important. And these three truths that we pull from it will help you see that and why we need to believe in the virgin birth. So let's look at our verse. It's Isaiah 7.14. In Isaiah 7.14, we read, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Probably heard that before around Christmas. A lot of times this prophecy is, is read in church services. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Okay, so we are going to talk about the virgin birth today. But first, we need to look at this verse in context. If you've ever studied the Bible, you know context is king. So you should read not just the verse you're looking at, but the verses before it, the verses after. And this comes in a section in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. It's kind of one unit. So let me tell you what's going on in this verse. It was given by the prophet Isaiah in the day of a king named Ahaz. Last year we talked about Ahab. This is not Ahab. Ahaz. And if you're looking at this biblical timeline, just a few weeks ago we were in the, in the book of Genesis talking about um, Joseph, and he was one of the patriarchs. He was the very last patriarch, came right before they entered into Egypt, right? So that was the timeline of the Bible. It starts out with the patriarchs, Egypt, the time of the judges, and then the kingdom of Israel emerges. King David and then King Solomon are the kings when the nation is united. But then soon after that, the, the nation of Israel divided in half from a civil war, and the ten northern tribes of Israel became what's called the nation of Israel, or in this section of the Bible called Ephraim. But the southern two tribes are, were called the, the nation of Judah. So these two nations are split, and they were never united again. 
And, and last week, if you were here, when Kenton um, preached a message, that was time of exile. So right after this, we're kind of jumping all over the Bible for you. That's why I wanted to show you this timeline. But now we are in the time of King Ahaz, which is 731 to about 715 B.C., roughly. So this is about 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And this King Ahaz is king of the southern nation, Judah. Now at this time, the people of Judah were freaking out. That's what it says in Hebrew. Um, no, but it literally says they were shaking. They were shaking. That's what it says. Because they were terrified. And as we look at this next slide of the map, we see the southern tribe Judah. What was happening was that the northern tribes, uh, Israel, were teaming up with Aram, which is modern-day Syria. And these two nations were coming to attack Judah. And all the, the people of God in Judah were terrified. Oh, no, we're going to be destroyed. We're going we're to lose. And Ahaz was freaking out. All the people were freaking out. What are we going to do? And that is when Isaiah gives them a prophecy. He says, hey, I'm going to give you a sign. God will be with you. And then what's really interesting, because what Isaiah is going to say is basically there's going to be a son that's born. And before the son, he goes on to say, before the son reaches the age where he knows right from wrong, both these nations are going to be wiped off the face of the planet. And that is, in fact, what happened, because, as we see the next slide, there was another nation named Assyria, which is northern Iraq. And this was a major superpower, and they came down and wiped out Aram, they wiped out Israel, they tried to wipe out Judah, and it says in Isaiah chapter 8 that the water got up to their necks because they wiped out almost the entire nation but could not defeat the capital of Jerusalem. God gave them victory, and the Assyrians actually left. They fled. God protected and saved his people Judah. So why I point all this out is because this prophecy that Isaiah gave in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 was fulfilled within his lifetime. Hmm, what about the virgin birth? We'll get to it. So this prophecy, if we can look at 714 again. When Isaiah said to Ahaz, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and the virgin will conceive. A lot of scholars think that as Isaiah was addressing the king, there was a woman there that maybe Isaiah pointed to and said, that woman, that virgin, that young lady, she's going to have a child. And we'll call him Emmanuel. If you go on to read in chapter 18, I know there's some differences of opinion among Bible scholars, but I think when you read chapter 8 is that Isaiah goes to this woman, and she's called the prophetess, and he marries her, and it says that he sleeps with her, and they have a son. Do we have signal? Oh, hey, there we go. Dramatic pause. <laughs> Some of these days we just have technical difficulties. Have you realized that? Yeah. God is good, right? You're still paying attention, right? So Isaiah says to this woman, you're going to ha- have a child. He sl- sleeps with her. He marries her, has a child. And then what's really interesting in chapter 8, twice it says that when the son was there, that God was with them. The same words, Emmanuel, because that's what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. So this son that Isaiah has is God with us. It's a sign. Oh, before he's even of age, both those nations are wiped out. God saves his people from Assyria. Well, awesome, but what about the virgin birth? What about Mary and all that? And the reason why we can say this, and you're like, I thought I was supposed to be a virgin. But here's the thing. In Hebrew, there were two words for virgin. One, the one used here, is literally young maiden. And it implied that somebody was a virgin because a young maiden in Israel living under their parents' roof would have been a virgin. 
That was expected of them. That was required of them by the law. But there's a second word that literally means someone who has not had sexual relationships with another person. And that's not the word used here in Hebrew. So this is a broader term. So that when Isaiah marries this woman and has a child with her, literally it says they have sex. So it says, okay, it's in the Bible. Then they conceive and have a child. And that's the sign symbolically that God is with them and saves those people. But here's the thing. When you study prophecies in the Bible, they often have more than one fulfillment. I blow your mind right there. Sometimes a prophecy is given like this. There's going to be a sign the son will be born and, and it will be a sign that God is with us and will save us. But ultimately there will be another son who is born. And not just born of a young maiden, but actually from a virgin. And he won't just be symbolically that God is with us, but literally that God is with us. See, prophecies often work this way in the Bible, and I, I think the best analogy for it is like a mountain range. The prophet Isaiah is looking into the future, and he sees as you would be looking at a mountain range, maybe it's for the first time in your life, and you just see one set of mountains. But as you get closer, you realize there's more mountains. They keep going and they keep going. I'm reading this book about Lewis and Clark and their expedition. And in the day of Lewis and Clark, everybody thought, everybody knew that America, if you just went from the east to the west, you'd get to the mountains when you follow up the Missouri River paddling on your canoe and you'd get to the top. And then you could just ride down the river on the other side all the way down to the Pacific Ocean. So that's what they were sent by Thomas Jefferson to do. Did you know that, Lewis and Clark? And they got to the Rocky Mountains, paddling up the river, canoeing up there, and they realized, uh-oh, these mountains are a little bigger than we expected. And they get into the mountains and they realize, okay, it's not just a few mountains of mi- miles of mountains. It's hundreds of miles of mountains, right? It's a whole mountain range that spans far, you know, farther than they could ever think that they could travel. So it completely changed everything. Because once you get up close, you realize, oh no, what you just saw was from a distance. So in prophecy, sometimes there's one or maybe a second one or even multiple fulfillments for a prophecy. And we know that this is true because later in the book of Matthew, we're told about a young woman. She, again, is a virgin. And another interesting thing I want to point out, in Greek, which is the New Testament is written in, the word for virgin that's used there is for a virgin who has not had sexual relations. So it cannot be interpreted two ways. I want to point that out. And we know about this young woman, Mary, because she was engaged to a young man named Joseph. And then she got pregnant. But she was supposed to be chased. She wasn't supposed to have sexual relations. So Joseph is kind of worried about this, like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good because I know I'm not the dad. So he decides that he's just going to break off the engagement quietly. Just move on. Nobody has to know about this. Let's just... But that night, the night before he was going to break off the engagement, an angel came to him in a dream. And this is where we pick it up in Matthew Chapter 1, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And then he goes on to say, this is why it's so important, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we just read that in Isaiah. So I thought it was fulfilled, Matt, you said, in 700 B.C.? Yes, but it was also fulfilled when Jesus was born. 
It's a double fulfillment. And I want you to see that because that is the true and better fulfillment. Because it wasn't just a sign for one king, Ahaz. But this would be a sign that the king of kings, the king of the universe would come and all nations would come one day and bow down before him. And it wasn't just a young maiden who would have normal sexual relations and have a child, but now it would be a literal virgin who would have a miraculous conception and give birth to a son. And it wouldn't just be symbolically that God is with his people, but literally that God came down to be with us. So there's three truths I want us to gather from this passage about why this Virgin birth is so important for us. And the first one is that it is a sign to point to God's salvation. It's a sign. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's a sign to point us to God's salvation. Back in Isaiah 7, 14, we read that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. I'll give you a sign. This is a signpost. This is a marker saying, hey, look here. It's an advertisement. Think small. It's going to be different than what you expected, but I want you to notice what I am doing. And God did it in such a unique way. What's really interesting is I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Utah, and just yesterday he posted a thing about Jesus on Facebook. And somebody commented to it, and uh, you know, it's always, you might get some weird comments, but this woman says, you know, that's great what you say about Jesus, but you know, it is impossible for me to get my mind around the virgin birth. She said, it's biologically impossible. Do you know what my friend responded? Exactly. That's the point. It is not possible by human means. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a child born without procreation. This was not IVF, okay? It says that the Holy Spirit overwhelmed, came over, overshadowed the Virgin Mary. In fact, in Luke, if we can jump ahead to to Luke chapter 1, It says, the angel replied to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And we'll get to the rest of the verse in just a second. The Holy Spirit came in a one-time, unique, once-in-history event to miraculously make this woman pregnant. Somehow, God, not through sexual relations, not through normal procreation, put in this child that was biologically human, 100% like us, that had an X and a Y chromosome somehow into this woman. This is unique and special. And I think that's so important for us to see because God is saying, hey, look over here. I'm doing something unique in history. Pay attention. It's a sign. And he had to do something different, right? He had to do something unusual or else people would just say, oh, that's just a normal dude. Here's the thing. The virgin birth is so unique. It's the only, we're the only uh, faith that believes in a virgin birth. You might read stuff on the internet, but it's all wrong. Okay? It's the only religion that teaches a virgin birth. Because in other religions, what they'll teach is that there's this human that will you know, rise above the rest of the humans and become a god. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God was there and came down. The, the other religions will teach that the gods come down from heaven and procreate with humans. That's Greek mythology. That's not what the Bible says. It's not a sexual act here. It's a miraculous conception. When I use the phrase virgin birth, and when most Christians use that, what they're talking about is virginal conception. Okay? Just, uh, when I say virgin birth, that's what I mean. That Mary was a virgin and conceived a child without sexual relationships. Got it? So this is a miracle. It's different. It's unique. It should get our attention. We should say, whoa, that's, that's unusual, <laughs> right? 
This is different than all the other religions. It should get your attention and it should be a sign. So for those of you in here who are struggling with this doctrine, or, or maybe just to believe in general, I want you to be challenged by saying, maybe God is trying to open up your eyes right now. And open up your heart to believe something because he's saying, hey, my salvation is coming. And of course it's not going to be like normal. Because later on, when people would say, uh, you know, when Peter or Paul in the early church were preaching and saying, hey, you've got to believe in Jesus. He's the savior of the world. People would have said, well, no, he's just human, just like the rest of us. Well, he is. But there's something unique even about his beginning. And say, oh, he's not just a normal person. He's God with us. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. But the second thing I want you to notice is that a virgin birth is to enable Jesus's sinlessness. A virgin birth to enable Jesus' sinlessness. I know that in this message I'm teaching more than I normally do, but it's important that, that you guys get this. So I'm going to talk a little bit of theology for a second. Keep your minds alert, okay? Focus for just a minute. A virgin birth to enable Jesus' sinlessness. It, we see this back in 714 in Isaiah, where it says the virgin will conceive. And of course, in Hebrew, that could be a young maiden. But in Greek, what the New Testament is, it literally is a virgin. There's no other way to interpret it. That's what it says. Mary was when she conceived. And this is a way that God interrupted history. See, in Christianity, what we believe is that God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, perfect. They were perfect. They could do what was right or do what was right and wrong, and they chose to do what's wrong. And then what happened after that was something we call the fall. That they sinned, and they ushered in a period of sin in human history that every single human being born after them would have a sinful nature. From birth, we have a sinful nature and have guilt. And it even says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're children of wrath. By that, it means that we are sinful from birth. And David said this in Psalm 51.5. He said, but I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now, it is not in the act of sex itself that something sinful happens. But somehow in human conception, naturally, somehow our sin nature gets passed from one generation to the next. So God said, hey, if that's how it's going from one generation to the next, everyone's sinful. We're all sinful in here. We all do wrong things, not just by choice, but also by our very nature. Something has to interrupt that, right? If we are going to have a person who is perfect and sinless. So God decided to interrupt history with a one-time event by not having a normal conception for a child. And this, in a way, enabled Jesus... To be sinless. Now we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that Christ Jesus was tempted in every way we are tempted, but he did not sin. So he had all the same opportunities that we do. He felt all the same temptation we do. Probably worse because Satan himself came to him and said, hey Jesus, I want to give you something. You know, so, so Jesus faced every temptation, yet he did not sin. But not only did he choose not to sin, but he did not have the sinful nature that we as human beings are born with. So I said Adam and Eve were those first perfect human beings and they had no sinful nature. What it says in the book of Romans is that Jesus too is the second Adam. So God had to break up human history some way and say, hey, if I'm going to bring a savior that could live a sinless, perfect life, I have to make his conception different. Do you see why this is important? Why you shouldn't take this brick out of the wall? 
Because it enables Jesus to live the sinless life that he did. Yeah, he's tempted. He's human just like us. But he didn't have the same sin nature. Because what could have happened when Paul and when Peter and when those early Christians were preaching and telling people about Jesus, hey, you've got to believe in him. He'll save you from your sins. Anyone who studied the Bible could have said, hey, I read what David wrote. We're sinful from the moment our mother conceived us. And they could have said, no, 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 you forget that Jesus was born different. He was conceived different by the Holy Spirit. And that enables then Jesus to live that sinless life. And why is that important? Because he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. All of us are required by God to be holy, to live a perfect life, and we all fail. We all sin, every single one of us, myself included. I don't have the servant's heart to clean up poop like I should. Neither do you. We all are sinful by nature, by choice, by action, by inaction. And yet Jesus did everything that he was supposed to do, and he still suffered a penalty of death and curse anyways. So if we want to believe that Jesus can forgive us our sins, which is at the heart of the gospel of Christianity, we've got to believe that this made it possible. Okay? Tracking with me? The virgin birth made it possible for Jesus to forgive us of our sins. That's good news. That's good news. And that's why it's a very important brick to have in the wall. But there's a third point that I want to make about why a virgin birth, and it's that Emmanuel to reveal that God became human. It wasn't just symbolically that God was with us, which is what Emmanuel means, but literally that God became human. Once again, this is not Greek mythology. This is not Zeus coming down and sleeping with some human woman and producing Hercules. It's not. It's not a half man, half God. It's not even some third type of being that's out there that's special. No, what we believe is that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. How does that work? Well, I don't know. But he was. It says he was 100% human. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, we read that for this reason, he had to be made like them fully human in every way. He's 100% human and he's 100% God. And that, my friends, is what makes Christianity more unique than any other religion. No other religion claims that a God became human. There might be some that say a human became a God. No, no, no. We're saying that God himself, the one and only creator of the universe, came down in human form and said, you've got to think small. You've got to think small. And this is so important for our lives Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, once said, it is only because he became like us that we can become like him. Not that we're going to be gods, but that we will reign with God. We will have a perfect communion with the Father in heaven forever. That we will have eternal life. That we will be made holy like he is holy. It's only because Jesus left that to be with us. God with us. And that's a good truth. I don't want to take that out of my wall. That's so important to me. It should be so important to you as well, that God became human. You guys like dogs? Even when they poop on the ground? No, I know you do. Most, like, I think over 60% of Americans have dogs. I read a study that 53% of people will buy their dog a Christmas present. Are you one of them? Some of you are laughing. 57% of uh, Americans call themselves their da- the daddy or mommy of their dog. You do that? 
And over 80% of dog owners, 80% consider the dog as part of the family, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We like our dogs, right? Now, just imagine for a second that your dog is sick. It's desperate. Or or all the dogs in the world are. They're they're desperate and sick. I I get this analogy from C.S. Lewis. He says, just imagine that. They're desperate. They need someone to help them. Would you leave the warmth and niceness of your home and your family members to become a dog? To talk with them and to help them and maybe save them from what's about to destroy them. Would you do that? You couldn't talk with your family and friends anymore. All you could do is pant and bark. I mean, you'd have a much shorter lifespan. It'd be uncomfortable a lot. You might get fleas. Somebody else has to clean up after you. But what the Bible teaches us is that when God became human, he left all his glory in heaven. He left angels worshiping him and serving him. He left perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He left all of that to become human so that he could talk to us, to get our attention, so that we'd think small and see him, that God is with us, so that he could love us and serve us and eventually die in our place. God with us was made possible through the virgin birth. And that's at the heart of what we believe, right? I think this is such an important truth. When we realize that, that God became human to love us and save us, our hearts go out to it. We think small and we realize, wow, how important. Because then God can empathize with us. When we have struggles and suffering and trials and even temptation that we give into, we realize that God knows what it's like to be human. And he loves us. In fact, Louis Giglio, a pastor out of Atlanta, said that you hear a little voice telling you God doesn't care about you, well, I hear a little baby's cry telling you he does. See, God says, I want you to think small. And that's why he sent this little baby born of a virgin when there wasn't room in the inn to be put in the manger with all the animals in a small town of 200 people in Podunk, nowhere. God says, I need to get your attention. What I am doing here is different and unique and special and will save you from your sins. It's everything. And if we look at our big idea one more time, that's why we need to realize that through a virgin birth, God made us think small to reveal a huge truth. Do you realize how much beautiful truth is packed into just this one prophecy of the virgin birth? That's amazing. And that's why we should believe in it. Because God is challenging all of our hearts to think small. Let's pray. Lord God, um, this is a truth that maybe is hard for some people to believe in. It's so miraculous. It's so different. How could this biological miracle happen? But Lord God, you foretold it 700 years before it even happened. And then you brought it to fruition. You did something small to get our attention. And Lord God, I pray that we'd be able to think that way, to realize that it's your son Jesus and his birth, his incarnation, his life, his death on the cross that makes our salvation possible, Lord God. And I I thank you so much for that truth. And may we stand in it because it is a firm foundation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So...
I don't know if you know this, but we have uh, a statement of faith. You can find it on our website. Those who just came in as members said, hey, we agree with the statement of faith. This is what we believe. There's 12 different items in it, and one of those items is about Jesus. So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to have you guys stand up, and those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, or those of you who are members of church, everybody stand up. You can stand up. If you're like, hey, I'm not a believer, Matt, here. I'm just a guest. You can just kind of mumble the words along. It's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. You can keep your mouth shut. But the rest of us, we're going to say this because this is what we believe as a church. Okay, so I'm gonna, uh, we're going to say it together. Got it? We're going to say it together. Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in his virgin birth, sinless life, miracles, and teachings. We believe in his substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, Perpetual intercession for his people and personal, visible return to earth. Amen.